Hey y'all, welcome to Holy Coitus, a community of hosts, H-E-A-U-X. We are humans who engage in consensual coitus, are kind to ourselves and partners, creative, fully embodied, unapologetic, powerful, and free. My mission is to encourage everybody and everyone to claim or reclaim their sexual agency and voice, regardless of what parts you were born with or changed, where you live, what you did in the past, what you learned in the past, what you plan to do in the future, whether you've had zero sex partners or countless a week, your host story is welcome here. You are welcome here. Hey, hey, y'all. Welcome to my podcast, Holy Coitus. My name is Jenea, and this is my podcast where I love talking with fellow hosts. You can follow my work at Holy Coitus on Instagram, and that is spelled H-E-A-U-X-O-Y-C-O-I-T-U-S, or just click on the little button thing in the notes, um, or on my website, Holy Coitus. So, uh, today's guest, her name is Emily Hedrick, and she is a wonderful human being, and she's going to talk about her um journey from being pastor to now non-religious and how she is coaching folks and growing and journeying with people who are making that transition in their lives or feels the cognitive and spiritual dissonance that so many of us feel um, who are in the deconstruction, even ex-evangelical purity culture dismantling space. Um, you can find Emily's work at Going Godless, and it's just with one G in the middle, so it's G-O-I-N Godless, um, Going Godless on Facebook and also on Instagram. Without further ado, y'all, this is Emily's host story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast. This, uh, my name is Jenea, and this my podcast is called Holy Coitus. And today I have another host story. Um, can you share with the people what, who are you, where are you, and yes, introduction. Okay, hi, I am Emily Hedrick. I am currently a what I would call a religious trauma informed spirituality coach, and I used to be a pastor. And I am currently in Quincy, Massachusetts, which is just south of Boston. Oh, excellent. So I think um, within the the community that this podcast is um, finds itself mostly, people are thinking about um, their religious upbringing. And so you said that you were a pastor and now you are not. So can you share a bit about like your journey of like... What, how did this happen? Yeah, so this is in some ways a long story, but I will say, let's start when I was nine. I actually, our church went through a transition of pastors when I was nine years old, and I think that got into my subconscious a little bit, and I started having dreams of preaching to mm-hmm. the congregation. So as early as nine, I, I had this idea that maybe I wanted to be a pastor, and I ended up being told by church leadership later when I was in my teens that um, women pastors are not biblical Mm. and had to go through my own process of figuring out what I was going to do with that information, how I was going to read and interpret scripture. I learned how to become a much more progressive Christian quickly because of where I stood in the hierarchy of genders. So... Mm. um, 
process, I had a conversation with my pastor at the time about whether or not I could preach a sermon. And he managed to theologically gaslight and manipulate me into believing I was a sinful and bad person for wanting to be a leader in the church. Mm. And it was a strange experience because I knew better and I had done my exegetical homework, my biblical interpretation of a lot of the passages he would have used to justify himself. But because of the religious language he was using, and even he said, I love you in that conversation as well. Like there's so many different layers to how spirituality can be manipulated with religious language. Hmm. Um, I believed him for a little bit. And then an hour or two later, I got out of the conversation and had a few other corrective experiences with other more progressive Christians and then had this moment of realization of someone who was able to get in my head and get me to believe things about myself that were not true mm-hmm. because they used religious language and because I love God. Mm-hmm. And it was very disorienting. So I ended up... Um, going through a bit of a crisis as a result of that. And really, that was when trauma started setting in because I had this innate understanding of I am vulnerable. My mind is vulnerable. My mind isn't even my own. I don't know how to protect it. I just found out that someone can just get in there and get me to think all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's what I actually think or feel or not. Um, And that that was really scary. And my way of dealing with that vulnerability ultimately was leaving church and getting rid of my belief in God. And it was a very, um, it was a very specific process for me. I chose to do it. I said, I, I had enough progressive Christians around me saying God is love that I said, okay, I'm willing to wager bet on that. If God really is love, then God will be okay if I stop believing in order to make my mental health better. Um, God will want that for me. So I'm just going to stop believing. And so the weird, the weird thing within all of this is that um, when I stopped believing, I got called by a pastor to do an internship at church, and it sounded like fun. And I was really confused. I was like, well, I don't believe anymore, and that makes me feel safer. But also I really love the idea of leading worship teams and working with scripture and writing worship services and and preaching. I still like all that stuff. I just don't believe in God. Mm. And so my path into pastoral ministry was one of studying religion from a practices perspective instead of a um, how do I get myself to believe stronger? Mm -hmm. And what do these practices do for people and how do they help people and how can I use them to make the world a better place even if I don't literally believe all this stuff? So that's how I became a pastor. That's, I guess, the first part. You asked me why I left. <laughs> that is fantastic. So I'm wondering about, like, your, um, as you were navigating um, the journey of you, like, moving through, you became a pastor, like, from, like, the 30,000-foot view of yeah. spiritual things. Um, so then did did you stay at the 30,000 view as you were a pastor and, and then just like, how, how did that work? That is fascinating. Yeah. Um, 
It was a little bit complicated and a little bit not. Because so much of it is practice-oriented as a pastor. It's a matter of, are you putting worship services together? Are you interacting with the text and finding ways to tell the story of the community as well as the story of the text? Hmm. And interweave those things and provide some some moral standards out of that. Um, these are all things that don't require literal belief to do, and they're fun and artful. Hmm. And so... Um, for me, there were moments when I was operating as my, oh yeah, I don't literally believe in this, but I love doing all this stuff. And then I would encounter someone, even other pastors or congregants, and they would say something or do something, or I'd get this feeling from them. And I would have these moments where I would surprisingly think to myself, oh, right, they believe in this. I forgot, people believe in this. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> so wow. it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange experience. So you would think that I would have spent my whole pastoral career being scared someone was going to find out I didn't literally believe in all of it. Mm. And it wasn't really. It didn't bother me. I had had enough conversations with uh, people that were a bit further along on their spiritual journeys to know that some people think doubt's a phase that people go through and that it's just it's part of spiritual growth, so it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not alarming. If you're not a fundamentalist, then it's, it's, it's okay. Um, and then for me, uh, for a while, I thought, well, yeah, maybe this will be a phase and I'll start believing in God again after I've been in it and done these practices enough times that I have a deeper understanding of something beyond literalism. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways that happened. I look back to some of my final sermons and I talk about God a lot. In the beginning, I made a determination to say, I'm only going to talk about Jesus and I'm only going to talk about the characters and the stories and I'm not going to mention God too much unless God is actually a character in the story. Hmm. Um, but by the time I was done and having been interacting with people that long, I think, you know, communities change us when we're a part of them. And so I was using the language, even though I wasn't believing in it, I knew that it was important for uh, the work I was doing. And to me, it was more about speaking a language than it was about telling telling literal truth. I, mm. I learned that God was a symbol and that these were stories that we used to uh, navigate life and have conversations around more than... Religion is about so much more than a doctrine. Yeah, for sure. Wow. And so where are you now in your spiritual journey? Yeah, so the other unfortunate thing that happened for me as I was pastoring was that I was trying to make space. Uh, I went into pastoring without having resolved a lot of my people-pleasing. And part of that was because I still hadn't gone through the developmental process of establishing myself as an adult, and I was terrified of finances. And the only... <laughs> which, I guess maybe I shouldn't make that as a, like,
forgetting the question. <laughs> no, that's fine. I was just asking, like, about your journey through um, your spiritual, um, and also, like, how you got to yes. where you are now. Yeah. So my spiritual life kind of stopped existing because I didn't feel safe. And mm. I can't do spiritual life when I don't feel safe. Uh, mm. That's And part of that harkens back to that experience I had when I was uh, in high school. Mm. I know spirituality makes me vulnerable, therefore I will not engage with it unless I am certain that I'm safe. And that's something that establishing that internal sense of safety is an important part of the trauma recovery process, too. Mm -hmm. So for me, the more I'm able to establish safety in my body, the more I'm able to experience spirituality. Wow. They go together. I think it's fascinating how you had to make the decision between God and safety um, and also like God and um, your own development. And it was an either, it sounds, it sounds to me like it was like an either or for you. Like you weren't able to put those together. Yeah, I think so. And I would say at the time I was in survival mode. So what we know from, from uh, our understanding of how trauma works in the body, I would have been in sympathetic nervous system dominance anytime I thought about God trying to survive. Mm. And when I'm in that state, I am going to be in binary thinking. Mm. It's going to be an either-or state. And so in order to get out of that, I took an either-or choice. I think now, as I continue to experience more safety in my body, as I'm on my own recovery journey, I'm able to have a little bit more of an open mind about it. Mm -hmm. um, but my own personal experience, I would say, actually, this is a pretty good lead-in to talking about holy coitus. Yes. Um, my experience of spirituality that I developed, both when I was in grad school and felt very safe. I loved grad school. I felt very safe in grad school. Mm -hmm. um, and then also as I developed my own sexuality, I was using my body as a sacred text. I was saying, my my body has wisdom I need to pay attention to. And mm -hmm. when I'm doing spiritual practice, I'm paying attention to my body and what it needs. Mm -hmm. And when I was pastoring, I was dissociating quite a lot in order to take care of congregants. And so there were things I had discovered when I went on sabbatical about my body. I had no idea that it was in as much pain as it was in or that... Um, I, I was experiencing a lot of that more as mental health issues and not realizing this is literal physical stuff going on in my body as a response to me ignoring it mm. uh, in order to care for people. Mm. That is fascinating. So I'm curious, can you share more a bit about, um, we talked before about like your, your journey in body image and body dysmorphia. So like, um, can you talk yeah. about that? And then also like you are, connection or disconnection to spirituality and how those things work together or didn't work together yes yeah so i would like to say especially with people that get involved very deeply in religion there's often a really significant developmental challenge that the religion is helping them meet and that if they leave the religion they're going to have to face that challenge head on um and that's part of the recovery process for a lot of people in dealing with religious trauma, having left religion. So mine was vulnerability about my body. And I grew up as a chubby kid. I was, uh, I was just going through old papers from my childhood the other day, and I found the medical records from school, which just contained where I was at with the BMI, which is its own problem. But um, I, I found my BMI records for 
about seven years of elementary into middle school, and I was in the 98th percentile, as in I was, I was a fat kid, according to BMI, mm-hmm. um, for all of those years. It did not change. It was like 97, 98, 99, 98, 99. Yeah. Um, and that really gave me a better understanding of why I thought I was such a problem. My body was such a problem. Um, because that yearly ritual at school of, oh, what's your weight? Oh, where are you? What percentile are you in? And me like hiding my paper from all of the mm-hmm. skinny white women. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was something that I learned was shameful and also made me what I will say, uh, unfuckable. Mm-hmm. And when I learned what sex was when I was in fifth grade, I remember talking to my mom about it in the car at one point and just asking her about it. She gave me a straightforward answer because she was a nurse and didn't mind talking about bodies, but was also fairly reticent. Like they took, my parents took the approach of if they ask about it, they're ready to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, which yeah, I could have used a little bit more information, but anyway, (laughs) when she told me that story of how sex works, which of course was straight, uh, straight heterosexual penetrative sex that's the only sex there is right what went through my mind at the time was oh you have to be naked in order to do this i'm too ugly for this this doesn't mm. apply to me and so i forgot I just legitimately forgot what sex was for a few years. I knew when to laugh at sex jokes via context clues, but it wasn't until I was in my junior year of high school that I was confronted by a friend a year younger than me that said, wait, you know how this works, right? And I was like, nope. journey of um becoming a hoe the idea that I was unfuckable because I was big bigger was also huge and I didn't that was really really bad joke but anyway like the um the it's it's shocking to me how um you know you're only supposed to have like this certain type of body in order for you to have sex and it's and I was like there are so many different kinds of bodies and um it, for me, it took a few um, situations and, and uh, Tinder dates and people and the guys would be like, oh, my gosh, like it's like we love the chub. And I was like, seriously, it's, it's amazing. And I had I had literally no idea. Blew my mind. Um, yeah. yeah. Blew my mind. Yeah. yeah. So now I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I actually do have a memory back from when I was a kid. My mom is also, like, this whole 
being larger than the BMI would have you, mm-hmm. um, is a genetic thing for my family, at least, to a certain extent. My mother is also bigger um, than the BMI would like. And mm-hmm. I, I put it in BMI terms mainly because when I, as I have gotten more and more aware of body acceptance and um, the larger fat community, I recognize that I am very much on the small fat spectrum of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so this is more about the BMI defining what fat means than than this broader expanse of human experience here. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember when I was a kid thinking she was the most beautiful, wonderful, soft, warm. I I would love hugging her and Mm -hmm. putting my head on her her breasts. Like, it was just... (sighs) Her body was wonderful to me, and yeah. she would come into parent-teacher conferences, and I would see some of the other mothers that were smaller than her and think, oh, man, these kids are missing out. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I remember her at one point talking about wanting to lose weight or doing some kind of an exercise thing and me making a comment of, but that's not but that's not your body, that's not who you are, and her being very upset at this Mm. idea that she couldn't possibly, that I wouldn't believe that she could attain this. Mm. And that was one of the first times that I kind of started to internalize, oh, is this bad? Is Mm. it bad to have a body like this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, noted. I will will keep that in mind. Um, But I also think there are some weird strands of, of purity culture and diet culture they definitely weave together and create certain narratives together when uh, in certain religious contexts. Mm-hmm. So this whole like original sin, there's something wrong with you and you have to do what we say, um, whether it's dieting or believing the right doctrine in order to fix it, mm-hmm. is they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And this whole, you need to punish yourself to feel better, you have to suffer. Jesus had to die on the cross for your sins. You have to be hungry all the time and starve and push your body beyond what feels good in order to fit this model. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so deeply problematic. Yeah. Yes, um, I live in Asia where everybody is like their 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 legs look like green beans, and it's just. And if you are a green bean person, then that's fantastic. But I'm not, and looking at. Um, the transition, like, also with me growing up being bigger in Denver, where everyone was, like, you know, running all these miles and climbing mountains and just doing random exercise shit. And then here's my little chub chub body. It's, I felt not, not fuckable and also just not seen. Um, and... And then it was that idea was perpetuated by purity culture. And I honestly thought, like, I was like, okay, if I just lose 10 more pounds, then I'll go on a date because I will be attractive and I will be, somebody will say, oh, you're pretty now. Um, And it's not okay. But yes. Anyway, so that is also one of my tangents. Love your body and have sex with the body that you have because, yes. Mm -hmm. You get one body. That's it. Wow. Okay, so we talked about the fat phobia piece. Um, and you also said that you um, are married, which I think is great. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I, my longest relationship was like, I don't know, three, three and a half months, and that was enough. I was like, somebody needs to leave. So congrats on you guys being together. Um, yeah. 
yeah, so, like, what has that journey been? Okay, sorry. First question, um, you talked about, like, your initial learnings of sexuality and things came from um, your mom being a nurse. Were there other um, sexual, like, where else did you learn information about sex? And then if my follow-up question to that is going to be, um, what did you do with that information? So, if we're talking elementary, middle, high school, um, it would have been, I guess we had some sex ed, but I think I learned more about my period than I did about sex. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I knew what the word orgasm meant for a little while either. Mm -hmm. And I certainly didn't recognize the difference between vagina and vulva, and at one point needed to remember what my genitals were called because I forgot. Again, this like this goes <laughs> this goes back to the whole. I'm just going to dissociate from the idea of sex and genitals at all because I it doesn't apply to me. Mm. Um, but eventually, after that experience with my friend in my junior year of high school, I realized I need better sex ed than I've gotten, and I need. Uh, I need to be able to, even if I don't think this will ever be a thing for me, even if I think I'm going to be a pastor and be celibate my whole life or something, um, I need to have vocabulary to talk about it with people that do, because there will be people I will be interacting with that mm-hmm. have sex and need to talk about sex. So I took a class in uh, my college education called Religion and Sexuality, mm. and in many ways, I took it for sex ed. <laughs> there was also just a basic human sexuality class, but I was a Bible and religion major, so it, it fit, and I was curious. Mm. And I learned a lot in that class. It was really well well done. I remember we had very frank and honest discussions in the classroom that helped me practice talking about penises, vaginas, orgasms, all of these different pieces of sexuality that might have been off the table for by even using words to talk about it. Um, I was able to practice in class, in class discussion, Mm -hmm. both in a large group and in smaller groups. And that was really helpful. And also we got a lot of really interesting information about religion and sex in general. I don't remember all of it, but uh, that helped a lot. And part of that class was to write our own personal sex ethic. And the fact that we were able to do that instead of just saying, you need to follow purity culture, end of story, was very helpful. Um, So I got thinking about it. And at that point, I was still scared of pregnancy. So my sex ethic at that point was, if you want to have sex, make sure you do it with someone you don't mind having a baby with. Mm. Again, very straight-oriented Mm-hmm. Approach to sexuality. Um, yeah. So, so that was that was what it was for college, and throughout college, I still thought that I was unfuckable, despite the fact that I lost forty pounds. Um, it was it was not. I, I learned during that experience that I once you once the things I believe about myself don't go away, even if I physically change. I have to work on those things in their own way. Mm -hmm. So, um, it wasn't until, actually, yeah, we could go here too. It wasn't until grad school when I was using my body as a sacred text. I did describe it that way at the time, but it's definitely what was going on. Mm. That I was able to finally figure out how to masturbate. Wow, it's game changing. So, 
Yeah, it was game changing. And part of that was my own admission to myself and my therapist at the time was, I think because I am an intellectual, curious human, I want to know what sex is like. It was a very, like, <laughs> it, it was a very curious, intellect-oriented yes. approach to the whole thing. But it was just like, I want to know what, this is a part of the human experience. I want to know what it is. Yep. <laughs> and so we had some, um, we had some conversations about, okay, well, a good place to start is masturbating. Even, even if you're not dating anyone, you can still have sex. Yes. Um, and so that became part of my meditation practice, actually. My meditation oh. practice was all about paying attention to my body. And I realized, oh, hey, if I want to pay attention to my body, I better do some exploring around my genitals. Mm-hmm. And it was this amazing experience of I had just been meditating and then was exploring my body and said, okay, I want to know how this works. I'm just going to play around and see what feels good. And then finally got there of having an orgasm, and which is not required for masturbation, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really delightful experience and completely different than what people had been describing it to me. Um, it, a lot of the ideas about masturbation came from purity culture of this, well, you're fantasizing about naked people and that's bad. And that's what masturbating is. Mm. Um, and for me at the time, it was just, this is pure body exploration. I'm not seeing anyone at all. I'm seeing like fireworks in my mind and I see colors. I see sparkles. I don't, this isn't, this isn't about another person. This is about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a really lovely way to get into masturbating. I was 26. Um, and then from there, I was able to do more exploring and then think about the fact of, okay, so you've established this foundation. Do you want to bring someone else into this? Mm. And that was also a very like, well, I'm curious. I want to know what it would be like. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, um, it, it didn't, I, I am still on the fence of trying to figure out how to describe my sexuality anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time I was trying to pay attention to, well, who am I sexually attracted to? Maybe this person. I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure this out. I wasn't allowed to think about this before and yeah. now I can. And I can't tell the difference between, um, sexual attraction and me just wanting to figure out sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it wasn't until the end of grad school that I ended up encountering someone that I actually did feel attracted to and then pursued that. And it happened at the same time that I was candidating to be a pastor at a church. Ooh, no plot twist. Yeah, fun fact, I candidated at the church I pastored on Valentine's Day. Oh, wow. And proceeded to leave that experience to go visit this man I was interested in who lived about an hour away. Mm-hmm. And I was much more nervous for meeting him than I was for preaching and candidating at the church. Oh. And what exactly is candidating? I don't know this word. Ah, yes. Candidating, basically, in the Mennonite church, which I am from, um, you kind of search for a pastoral position the way you would for a job, but you go to the conference minister instead of the church, and and they're kind of like a broker, and they like bring different candidates, pastoral candidates to the church to consider, and then eventually they pick one. Um, 
they, they won't like, they don't want to have the congregation choosing between two people because it's potentially divisive. So they'll just pick one. And if they pick you, you go and you candidate, which means that you visit them, you talk to them, you preach at them, and they decide if they like you. Got it. Uh, so that's what candidating is. Okay, cool. So you had to pick between prioritizing the candidating in your mind and a man. Yes. Uh, maybe. I think I did pretty good with the candidating. And at the time, we weren't technically dating. We had not officially expressed interest in each other yet. But yeah, yeah I was just, I was much more nervous. Oh, nervous. That's cute. Oh, yeah. precious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Well, so, um, did y'all, like, were you together, or did you, I'm guessing this is who you married? Or what was this yeah, journey this like? married, yeah. Okay. We have been messaging back and forth on Facebook for quite some time. I went to grad school in North Carolina, and he was living in Ohio, mm-hmm. and I ended up pastoring in Ohio. Not of him, actually. It's a longer story. It's actually because of his family. <laughs> I knew his I knew his whole family before I met him. Mm. Um, he was busy doing human rights work in Palestine, doing other fancy things. So mm-hmm. I uh, um, met him later. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So what ended up happening was he did come to visit me in North Carolina, and it was like the one time I was in in a sense sexually free of being a pastor. Mm. that we could really be together. And it was right after finals ended. I graduated in May. Two weeks later, I was starting as a pastor. So it was just that in-between time right then. And it was, I had not dated anyone before. He was the first person I kissed. So it wasn't like we were about to have sex Mm. when I was free and able to do so. I needed time to understand how this worked with another person. I wasn't just going to, which was, it, it just, it, the whole thing feels ironic to me. It's like the timing is off. I, I felt like, and this is the weird fuckery of religion to a certain extent. It was like I was also somewhat married to the congregation because mm. of the sex rules. It's like almost like by having premarital sex with anyone at all, I was cheating on them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how it felt. And despite the fact that like my sexuality doesn't belong to them, and yet at the same time, there are all of these rules about how sex is supposed to be. And I'm, if I'm supposed to be a leader in the religion that has the sex rules, I better be following them, right? Right. We know that doesn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we know that this is terribly abused in many, many places. But it is. I was trying to be a person of integrity to a certain extent in the midst of all of this. Congrats. Yes. But I didn't literally believe in the rules. So, yeah, a lot of cognitive dissonance. There is a lot of dissonance. <laughs> so much dissonance when it comes to sexuality and religion and church. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. <sighs> so, can you talk about, because you wrote about this wedding dress, and the which is a brilliant story. So, I will be sure to um, post your piece on and connect it, because... It's it's a it's a very well written and yes, but can you can yeah. you tell people about like why this was significant and also like what was happening because this is yeah it's a big deal. So um, when when my spouse and I ended up deciding to get married, it was very straightforward between the two of us. I pretty much said like, listen, I'm a pastor. I want to live with you and. I have this congregation who I haven't asked if it's okay because I'm too scared to. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if we could get married so that this works. And that wasn't my only proposal. Um, I didn't propose to him. Um, that was not the only part of the proposal. Yeah. <laughs> I also like liked the relationship. I yes. was definitely in a loving relationship with him. But mm-hmm. um, so because of the the fat phobia I experienced growing up, I dreaded the idea of getting married. And I also because of the patriarchy of the religion I was in growing up, I dreaded getting married. I didn't necessarily want to. I kind of wanted to say I can be a full and complete person without this. Mm-hmm. I don't need this. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a part of me that would have preferred living in sin my entire life to getting married simply because I didn't want that to be the best day of my life. I didn't Mm -hmm. want it to be the pinnacle. Uh, And I knew that just by doing it, people would see it that way. And I hated it. Mm. I had a lot of, I still have some anger about it, as you can tell in my voice. I Um, Yes. And I knew that my congregants were going to have a whole bunch of stories about it, too, that I was going to despise. And that I was going to show up in a wedding dress that day, and they'll all be like, oh, you're so beautiful. I'll be like, shut up. I was in the 98th percentile of the PMI for seven years. I know I'm not beautiful. Stop lying to me. Yes. So the the other side of it was also um, the, the... the objectification of it, this weird sense of by getting married, I was, I, I turned into a woman in a way that was dismissible. Mm. Um, and to this day, I ended up leaving because the whole thing was too stressful and I, it was, the cognitive dissonance was too much for me and my body. And to this day, I'm sure there are people in the congregation that think I left so that I could have a nice marriage with children mm. and not have to worry about this career stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just infuriates me to think about that story. And I also recognize, not my business, they can tell whatever stories they like. Um, But part of the ways that I, I, uh, the other complication in all of this is that I decided in order to avoid processing down the aisle, because I just imagined everybody stripping me naked in their minds, because in purity culture, this is the day I get to have sex. Um, for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, a woman in a wedding dress walking down the aisle in her purity is just an invitation to think about the two people having sex. And I hated it. It's like, mm-hmm. this is not your business. Yes. Um, and so I ended up not getting a white wedding dress. But the other way I was able to get out of processing down the aisle was to say, we're doing this the Anabaptist way. Anabaptist is a... Um, the I would say theological ancestor of Mennonites, and there's and actually I could say this was a Mennonite way of doing things too. That there's just the sense of frugality and practicality to things. You're not going to buy into the wedding industry. Um, we have both of us. I, I married a Mennonite. Um, both of us have family history of, of people getting married during a church service as part of a larger Sunday service, and then them eating punch and candy mm-hmm. in 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 a reception afterwards and that's that mm. no big deal this our wedding still had hallmarks of wedding industry because we had people in our lives that wanted to make it beautiful and that was very kind um but ultimately the way that we did it was i had both of us sitting at the front of the congregation from the very beginning there was no procession 
And we told a children's story in which I, as the pastor, said, oh, hey, who is this new guy that's going to maybe show up every now and then? Um, and let me explain to you what's happening here. And that was, like, most of the performance, other than, like, the vows and things, which were done after the sermon. But my congregation, then, was there, part of a very personal wedding. Um, wow. And so I had to be a pastor and a bride at the same time. Wild. Yeah, which had its own fun stories in the midst of that whole weekend. But um, I knew that not only was I going to have to be kind to people who had put time and money into making a beautiful wedding experience that I was very angry about, but also I needed to be a professional mm. in those in that on that day, and I was pissed as hell about mm. the fact that I needed to be getting married at all. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to be able to express that. And I needed to do it and be seen and witnessed by people who loved me for who I was and not for the fact that I was getting married or the fact that I was a pastor. And so what I did was I planned a wedding dress burning. I went to a thrift store. I bought a $6 tiny wedding dress. And I covered it in permanent marker. I wrote a journal entry on it about my anger about the day, I invited my friends uh, to come and write stupid patriarchal shit that was told to them at different times mm. um, on the on the wedding dress. I, I called it deflowering. We deflowered it. Um, and then we ripped it to shreds. I, like, took a pitchfork and, like, <laughs> tuck it into the dress while, like, all of, all of my friends were around, like, holding it taut. And then we burned it. And we burned it. And it was, I got, I got pretty drunk and we had a good time. Oh, um, it's wonderful. And that was the night before the wedding. And it was just such a, the other thing that can happen at weddings sometimes is there's this unspoken or spoken competition between women, like classic, the, the throwing the bouquet mm -hmm. of, oh, well, the whole point is to get married and this Emily won because she's getting married. Who's going to win next? And who's the prettiest? And who's the most fuckable? And this was the opposite of that. Mm. This was like, we are all enraged by this. Some of us are married and some of us aren't. And we are going to demolish this wedding dress <laughs> and be angry about yes. the fact that this is still a thing yes. in the 21st century. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that I was able, any time that I was just like, well, the fifth person told me that I am beautiful today. I would just think back and imagine the dress burning. Just be like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You've been seen. Yes. These people don't need to see you. You've exactly. been seen already. <laughs> I love that story. It's fantastic. So um, I know you have to go, but I have two more things I want to ask you about. So the first one is, sure. like, you mentioned, which I think is such a powerful um, idea of – healing through sex and also sex as being inherently good. So can you talk a bit about like um, how you came to this conclusion and things in your life that helped you see and heal through actual having sex? Quite and fucking. Yes. Yeah, one of the ways I dealt with my fat phobia was by in some ways like creating a tiny little container in which me and my body lived and it was okay there and I could like my body and be okay with my body and I could recognize that once I left that little love container other people were not going to be okay with my body 
Mm-hmm. And so if I ever needed to retreat, I could just say, you know what, I'm in here with my body and I know that, that we're here for each other, but um, I can't expect that of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And when I started dating my spouse, I um, it was like inviting someone else into that little love container. Mm. And it was transformative. In, in, in many ways, it was perspective to say, oh, is my body not gross? Is my body beyond not gross to lovable? Mm. Can someone enjoy loving my body with me? Well. And that was transformative for me. That I was already working on being grounded myself, but to be able to have the experience that someone else could join me for that was so powerful and healing and involved sex. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it involved sex, which was supposed to be so terrible for you and bad for you if you did it outside of marriage, was really confusing for me. Mm -hmm. Because the patriarchy piece made me never want to be married before having that experience of mutual uh, appreciation of bodies. And I wasn't about to just do that. It was, in in many ways, the marriage, well, not the marriage, the wedding was harmful to me. Mm. Um, That whole year of getting ready for the wedding and needing to make that story work for the congregation, for our families, for whatever, uh, my body responded by uh, having significant weight gain quickly. I developed rosacea, which I think is an immune response. Mm-hmm. I became lactose intolerant. <laughs> I, like, so many, there's a whole bunch of different things that happened in my body preparing in that year preparing for the wedding that was an obvious indicator that it was not healthy. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and it's just so sad that there's not room in the way that churches understand sexuality to see that reality was completely different and at that point I didn't believe in God anymore the gospel wasn't doing anything for me other than providing the practices and community which is not nothing but it ended up twisting and turning on me and and by the end of that time I was also suicidal I had suicidal ideations regularly mm-hmm. um, and some of that came with losing the calling to pastoring too that still mattered even though I didn't believe in God mm. and it was just so terribly physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually unhealthy. And yet it's like the held up beacon of you're a good Christian if you can get married before having sex. I couldn't. <laughs> I, 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 by the time I was done, I was too exhausted to be very feisty about it. But um, it really, it wrecked, it wrecked my body for a bit there. Mm-hmm. And I'm still recovering from that. Yeah. Um, and contrast that with this very healing of experience of being skin to skin with another person, of sharing orgasms with another person, of being able to have this experience of a body being loved and and believed and accepted and considered to be whatever beautiful needs. Mm-hmm. This is not gelling. How is this? Yes. <laughs> It's, it's so true. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess you asked me, you know, 45 minutes ago why I stopped being a pastor, and ultimately that was it. Wow. 
those two things up against each other, that was it. Literally, yes. I I have in my whole journey, I have understood. I'm I'm not. I would say that I'm um, spiritual in some capacity, but I I definitely give white Jesus a side eye because he gets on my nerves. But like, um, yeah. I've learned so much about spiritual things through fucking like, and it's been yes. phenomenal. Like I have like massive, like big ideas and revelations after having an orgasm. I was like, if I would have had this a long time ago, I would have had so many more understandings of spiritual truths. But <laughs> you know, the, the, the journey into coming to this point, it, it required me to go through a lot. So I get it. Yeah. Um, so for people who, um, want to engage in sex as healing and or getting into a special space of acceptance of their bodies. Um, what things would you like to share with folks what, um, to whom your story resonates? Um, I know a lot of pure 
maternity culture trauma can come from breaking the rules, even if you're outside of the system. And so having an experience of being able to voice, this is what my body wants, and have another human say, that's a good thing. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Can be a really important part of getting to a place where that's no longer a threat mm-hmm. and scary. Mm-hmm. Because even even sex that my body wants can be perceived as a threat when I, I've been fucked with purity culture. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I got lucky in that regard that I could do a lot of work ahead of time. Right. Oh, excellent. Um, okay, so... One question, and then I have one more. So the idea of, for people who want to um, he, see themselves as sacred text, um, can you give like a two or three bullet points on things you can ask yourself or to help you to develop this new mindset? Because you've mentioned that piece before, and it's, yeah. it's very powerful. So I can tell you what I've done. Um, <laughs> So when I was in grad school, there was a lot of talk about destroying body-spirit dualism and doing some other, approaching things another way. And physically how I did that was I took myself into a room by myself that had a lot of space on the floor. I turned out the lights so that I was not distracted by looking at things. And I paid attention to my body for a good 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes regularly. And the way that I paid attention to my body was asking questions like, what does my body want to do right now? Where is my body tense? What would like to stretch? Um, very basic body movements. What What does my body want to try doing that it hasn't done? Like in, in these moments, I discovered my hips existed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all of these different all of these different potential things that a body can do, there's so much more that bodies can do than what, what a typical day might hold. Mm. My body can do more than sit and type and talk. Mm. Um, it can stretch. My arms can go above my head. How often does that happen? Mm-hmm. Do they want to? Maybe <laughs> I should. Um, and using the darkness as a way to focus and say, pay attention to sensations. What's going on in you? What wants to happen? Mm. Um, that has been a really important regular practice for me when I feel safe, when I'm able to do it. Um, so it didn't happen very much when I was a pastor unless I was having sex. Mm. Um, it, it has happened more now that I've left. And other things I've discovered in that too is that as I've resolved some of the tension that's that collected in my body from being a pastor and holding that role, um, I've noticed that there is a little bit of like, sometimes my body wants to tense things up a lot and then let them go, which a lot of these practices, you could find a bunch of therapists that are like, oh yeah, it's progressive muscle relaxation. Your body can teach you those things without you having to talk to a therapist if you're willing to take the time to listen. And it can feel very vulnerable, which is why I went into a dark room and closed the door and made sure nobody was in there and I couldn't even see myself. Mm-hmm. But... Um, it, 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 it's valuable practice. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love it. Okay, before you're late to even more late to your next meeting, um, can you share with folks how they can find you, um, hire you? Because I know do know that you're a coach. So, like, how are you yeah. helping folks? Where can they find you? How can they send you po- coins? Yes, where do, where yes. where is your work located? Um, I am working 
under the title of Going Godless, and because the domain was too expensive with two G's in the middle, it only has one. <laughs> so it's Going Godless. Um, mm-hmm. And you can find me on Instagram under that title. You can find me on Facebook under that title. And you can also find my website under that title, goinggodless.com. Mm-hmm. Um, going Godless. <laughs> um, and I have a blog on there. Right now, I am currently, I don't know. When, are, when this podcast is going to be published, but right now I'm currently enrolling for a group course on crafting personal spirituality, and the reason it's a group course is because ultimately the hope is if we're able to ground ourselves in the spirituality that fits us, that gives us an opportunity to be a part of groups practicing spirituality without having to give ourselves away mm. completely. Um, so this is very grounded in, in some of my experiences of having to give myself away when I was a pastor and saying, oh, okay, let's find a place to start here mm. that can be a solid foundation for being able to interact with others but having boundaries. Um, so that is currently what I'm enrolling, but I also work with people one-on-one. And in March, April, I'll probably be enrolling for a group doing work specifically on religious trauma. Ooh, so, yes. Excellent. All right. Do you want to share anything else um, that you forgot to say? Or do you want to say something one more time because it was super important before we end today? Or did you get everything Uh, off of your chest? I think we did pretty good. Uh, I think, yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Emily, for sharing your story, your whole story, and your expertise. And I have greatly enjoyed um, chatting with you. And so I will be posting all of the links and all of the things on my website, Holy Coitus, and also on my um, Instagram page and so that people can find you and support you. Yes. And just, awesome. you know, be noisy, just like everybody else is on social media. Yep. Yes. Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much thank and you. have a lovely afternoon. See you later. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Thank you, thank you, Emily, for sharing your story. You are such a light to everyone and to me, and I felt so encouraged and so seen just with talking with you. So I encourage all of my listeners and all folks who come across this podcast to send love, support, hire, um, journey with Emily online on her Instagram page, which is Godless, G-O-I-N, Godless, G-O-D-L-E-S-S. Um, you can also find and support my work at Holy Coitus on Instagram, which is H-E-A-U-X-L-Y-C-O-I-T-U-S. I have some super cool t-shirts and coffee cups. And also, y'all, I am always looking for the next guest on my podcast to share their host story. Each and every one of my guests are so brave and so vulnerable and so willing to um, dive into um, dive into their journey for the collective good of all of humanity. And I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. So, um, until next time, you guys, drink water, be kind to yourself, go to therapy, you guys. Hire that coach who can help you get from where you are to where you want to be. And also, have some great orgasms. What else can I tell you guys? Mm, take a nap. All right. Enjoy your week, y'all. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.